Chapter Twelve of Domestic Manners of the Americans by Francis Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve: Peasantry compared to that of England, Early Marriages, Charity, Independence and Equality, Cottage Prayer Meeting. Mohawk, as our little village was called, gave us an excellent opportunity of comparing the peasants of the United States with those of England, and of judging the average degree of comfort enjoyed by each. I believe Ohio gives as fair a specimen as any part of the Union. If they have the roughness and inconveniences of a new state to contend with, they have higher wages and cheaper provisions. If I err in supposing it a mean state in point of comfort, it certainly is not in taking too low a standard. Mechanics, if good workmen, are certain of employment, and good wages, rather higher than with us. The average wages of a laborer throughout the Union is ten dollars a month with lodging, boarding, washing, and mending. If he lives at his own expense, he has a dollar a day. It appears to me that the necessaries of life, that is to say, meat, bread, butter, tea, and coffee, not to mention whiskey, are within the reach of every sober, industrious, and healthy man who chooses to have them. And yet I think that an English peasant with the same qualifications would, in coming to the United States, change for the worse. He would find wages somewhat higher, and provisions in Western America considerably lower. But this statement, true as it is, can lead to nothing but delusion, if taken apart from other facts, fully as certain, and not less important, but which require more detail in describing, and which perhaps cannot be fully comprehended, except by an eye-witness. The American poor are accustomed to eat meat three times a day. I never inquired into the habits of any cottagers in Western America where this was not the case. I found afterwards in Maryland, Pennsylvania, and other parts of the country where the price of meat was higher, that it was used with more economy, yet still a much larger portion of the weekly income is thus expended than with us. Ardent spirits, though lamentably cheap, still cost something and the use of them among the men, with more or less of discretion, according to the character, is universal. Footnote. About a shilling a gallon is the retail price of good whiskey. If bought wholesale or of inferior quality, it is much cheaper. Tobacco also grows at their doors, and is not taxed. Yet this too costs something, and the air of heaven is not in more general use among the men of America than chewing tobacco. I am not now pointing out the evils of dram-drinking, but it is evident that where this practice prevails universally, and often to the most frightful excess, the consequence must be that the money spent to obtain the dram is less than the money lost by the time consumed in drinking it. Long, disabling, and expensive fits of sickness are incontestably more frequent in every part of America than in England and the sufferers have no aid to look to but what they have saved, or what they may be enabled to sell. I have never seen misery exceed what I have witnessed in an American cottage where disease has entered. But if the condition of the labourer be not superior to that of the English peasant, that of his wife and daughters is incomparably worse. It is they who are indeed the slaves of the soil. One has but to look at the wife of an American cottager, and ask her age, to be convinced that the life she leads is one of hardship, privation, and labour. It is rare to see a woman in this station who has reached the age of thirty without losing every trace of youth and beauty. 
You continually see women with infants on their knee, that you feel sure are their grandchildren, till some convincing proof of the contrary is displayed. Even the young girls, though often with lovely features, look pale, thin, and haggard. I do not remember to have seen in any single instance among the poor a specimen of the plump, rosy, laughing physiognomy so common among our cottage girls. The horror of domestic service, which the reality of slavery and the fable of equality have generated, excludes the young women from that sure and most comfortable resource of decent English girls, and the consequence is that with a most irreverent freedom of manner to the parents, the daughters are, to the full extent of the word, domestic slaves. This condition, which no periodical merry-making, no village fate, ever occurs to cheer, is only changed for the still sadder burdens of a teeming wife. They marry very young. In fact, in no rank of life do you meet with young women, in that delightful period of existence between childhood and marriage, wherein, if only tolerably well spent, so much useful information is gained, and the character takes a sufficient degree of firmness to support with dignity the more important parts of wife and mother. The slender childish thing, without vigour of mind or body, is made to stem a sea of trouble that dims her young eye, and makes her cheek grow pale, even before nature has given it the last beautiful finish of the full-grown woman. "'We shall get along,' is the answer in full, for all that can be said in way of advice to a boy and girl, who take it into their heads to go before a magistrate, and get married." and they do get along till sickness overtakes them, by means perhaps of borrowing a kettle from one and a teapot from another, but intemperance, idleness, or sickness will, in one week, plunge those who are even getting along well into utter destitution, and where this happens they are completely without resource. The absence of poor laws is, without doubt, a blessing to the country, but they have not that natural and reasonable dependence on the richer classes, which, in countries differently constituted, may so well supply their place. I suppose there is less alms-giving in America than in any other Christian country on the face of the globe. It is not in the temper of the people either to give or to receive. I extract the following pompous passage from a Washington paper of February 1829, a season of uncommon severity and distress, which I think justifies my observation. Among the liberal evidences of sympathy for the suffering poor of this city, two have come to our knowledge which deserve to be especially noticed, the one a donation by the President of the United States to the committee of the ward in which he resides of fifty dollars the other the donation by a few of the officers of the War Department to the Howard and Dorcas Societies of seventy-two dollars. When such mention is made of a gift of about nine pounds sterling from the Sovereign Magistrate of the United States, and of thirteen pounds sterling as a contribution from one of the State Departments, the inference is pretty obvious that the sufferings of the destitute in America are not liberally relieved by individual charity. I had not been three days at Mohawk Cottage before a pair of ragged children came to ask for medicine for a sick mother, and when it was given to them, the eldest produced a handful of cents, and desired to know what he was to pay. The superfluous milk of our cow was sought after eagerly, 
but every newcomer always proposed to pay for it. When they found out that the English old woman did not sell anything, I am persuaded they by no means liked her the better for it, but they seemed to think that if she were a fool it was no reason that they should be so too, and accordingly the borrowing, as they called it, became very constant, but always in a form that showed their dignity and freedom. One woman sent to borrow a pound of cheese, another half a pound of coffee, and more than once an intimation accompanied the milk-jug that the milk must be fresh and unskimmed. On one occasion the messenger refused the milk and said, Mother only wanted a little cream for her coffee. I could never teach them to believe, during above a year that I lived at this house, that I would not sell the old clothes of the family and so pertinacious were they in bargain-making that often when i had given them the articles which they wanted to purchase they would say well i expect i shall have to do a turn of work for this you may send for me when you want me but as i never did ask for the turn of work and as this formula was constantly repeated i began to suspect that it was spoken solely to avoid uttering the most un-american phrase i thank you there was one man whose progress and wealth I watched with much interest and pleasure. When I first became his neighbour, himself, his wife, and four children were living in one room, with plenty of beef-steaks and onions for breakfast, dinner, and supper, but with very few other comforts. He was one of the finest men I ever saw, full of natural intelligence and activity of mind and body, but he could neither read nor write. He drank but little whisky, and rarely chewed tobacco, and was therefore more free from that plague-spot of spitting which rendered male colloquy so difficult to endure. He worked for us frequently, and used to walk into the drawing-room and seat himself on the sofa and tell me all his plans. He made an engagement with the proprietor of the wooded hill before mentioned, by which half the wood he could fell was to be his own. His unwearied industry made this a profitable bargain and from the proceeds he purchased the materials for building a comfortable frame, or wooden, house. He did the work almost entirely himself. He then got a job for cutting rails, and as he could cut twice as many in a day as any other man in the neighbourhood, he made a good thing of it. He then let half his pretty house, which was admirably constructed, with an ample portico that kept it always cool. His next step was contracting for the building of a wooden bridge, and when I left Mohawk he had fitted up his half of the building as an hotel and a grocery store, and I have no doubt that every sun that sets sees him a richer man than when it rose. He hopes to make his son a lawyer, and I have little doubt that he will live to see him sit in Congress. When this time arrives the woodcutter's son will rank with any other member of Congress, not of courtesy but of right, and the idea that his origin is a disadvantage will never occur to the imagination of the most exalted of his fellow-citizens. This is the only feature in American society that I recognize as indicative of the equality they profess. Any man's son may become the equal of any other man's son, and the consciousness of this is certainly a spur to exertion. On the other hand, it is also a spur to that coarse familiarity, untempered by any shadow of respect, which is assumed by the grossest and the lowest, in their intercourse with the highest and most refined. This is a positive evil, and, I think, more than balances its advantages. 
And here again it may be observed that the theory of equality may be very daintily discussed by English gentlemen in a London dining-room, when the servant, having placed a fresh bottle of cool wine on the table, respectfully shuts the door, and leaves them to their walnuts and their wisdom. But it will be found less palatable when it presents itself in the shape of a hard, greasy paw, and is claimed in accents that breathe less of freedom than of onions and whisky. Strong indeed must be the love of equality in an English breast, if it can survive a tour through the Union. There was one house in the village which was remarkable from its wretchedness. It had an air of indecent poverty about it, which long prevented my attempting an entrance, but at length, upon being told that I could get chicken and eggs there whenever I wanted them, I determined upon venturing. The door being open to my knock, I very nearly abandoned my almost blunted purpose. I never beheld such a den of filth and misery. A woman, the very image of dirt and disease, held a squalid imp of a baby on her hip-bone while she kneaded her dough with her right fist only. A great lanky girl of twelve years old was sitting on a barrel gnawing a corn-cob. When I made known my business, the woman answered, no, not I. I got no chickens to sell, nor eggs neither. But my son will. Plenty, I expect. Here, Nick, bawling at the top of a ladder, here's an old woman what wants chickens. Half a moment brought Nick to the bottom of the ladder, and I found my merchant was one of a ragged crew, whom I had been used to observe in my daily walk, playing marbles in the dust and swearing lustily. He looked about ten years old. Have you chicken to sell, my boy? Yes, and eggs, too, more nor what you'll buy. Having inquired price, condition, and so on, I recollected that I had been used to give the same price at market, the feathers plucked, and the chicken prepared for the table, and I told him that he ought not to charge the same. Oh, for that I expect I can fix em as well as ever them was, whatever you got in market. You fix them? Yes, to be sure, why not? I thought you were too fond of marbles. He gave me a keen glance, and said, "'You don't know I. When will you be wanting the chickens?' He brought them at the time directed, extremely well fixed, and I often dealt with them afterwards. When I paid him, he always thrust his hand into his breeches pocket, which I presume, as being the keep, was fortified more strongly than the dilapidated outer works, and drew from thence rather more dollars, half-dollars, levies, and fips, than his dirty little hand could well hold. My curiosity was excited, and though I felt an involuntary disgust towards the young Jew, I repeatedly conversed with him. "'You are very rich, Nick,' I said to him one day, on his making an ostentatious display of change, as he called it. He sneered with a most unchildish expression of countenance, and replied, I guessed would be a bad job for I, if that was all I'd got to show. I asked him how he managed his business. He told me that he bought eggs by the hundred and lean chickens by the score, from the wagons that passed their door on the way to market, that he fatted the latter in coops he had made himself, and could easily double their price, and that his eggs answered well too, when he sold them out by the dozen. And do you give the money to your mother? I expect not was the answer, with another sharp glance of his ugly blue eyes. "'What do you do with it, Nick?' His look said plainly, "'What is that to you?' But he only answered quaintly enough, "'I takes care of it.' 
How Nick got his first dollar is very doubtful. I was told that when he entered the village store, the person serving always called in another pair of eyes. But having obtained it, the spirit, activity, and industry with which he caused it to increase and multiply would have been delightful in one of Miss Edgeworth's dear little clean, bright-looking boys, who would have carried all he got to his mother. But in Nick it was detestable. No human feeling seemed to warm his young heart, not even the love of self-indulgence, for he was not only ragged and dirty, but looked considerably more than half-starved, and I doubt not his dinners and suppers half-fed as fat chickens. I by no means give this history of Nick, the chicken merchant, as an anecdote characteristic in all respects of America. The only part of the story which is so is the independence of the little man, and is one instance out of a thousand of the hard, dry, calculating character that is the result of it. Probably Nick will be very rich. Perhaps he will be president. I once got so heartily scolded for saying that I did not think all American citizens were equally eligible to that office, that I shall never again venture to doubt it. Another of our cottage acquaintance was a market gardener, from whom we frequently bought vegetables. From the wife of this man we one day received a very civil invitation to please come and pass the evening with them in prayer. The novelty of the circumstance, and its great dissimilarity to the ways and manners of our own country, induced me to accept the invitation, and also to record the visit there. We were received with great attention, and a place was assigned us on one of the benches that surrounded the little parlour. Several persons, looking like mechanics and their wives, were present. Everyone sat in profound silence and with that quiet, subdued air that serious people assume on entering a church. At length a long, black, grim-looking man entered. His dress, the cut of his hair, and his whole appearance strongly recalled the idea of one of Cromwell's fanatics. He stepped solemnly into the middle of the room, and took a chair that stood there, but not to sit upon it. He turned the back towards him, on which he placed his hands, and stoutly uttering a sound between a hem and a cough, he deposited freely on each side of him a considerable portion of masticated tobacco. He then began to preach. His text was, Live in Hope, and he continued to expound it for two hours, in a drawling, nasal tone, with no other respite than what he allowed himself for expectoration. If I say that he repeated the words of this text a hundred times, I think I shall not exceed the truth, for that allows more than a minute for each repetition, and in fact the whole discourse was made up of it. The various tones in which he uttered it might have served as a lesson on emphasis, as a question, in accents of triumph, in accents of despair, of pity, of threatening, of authority, of doubt, of hope, of faith. Having exhausted every imaginable variety of tone, he abruptly said, Let us pray, and twisting his chair round, knelt before it. Everyone knelt before the seat they had occupied, and listened for another half-hour to a rant of miserable, low, familiar jargon that he presumed to improvise to his maker as a prayer. In this, however, the cottage apostle only followed the example set by every preacher throughout the Union, excepting those of the Episcopalian and Catholic congregations. They only do not deem themselves privileged to address the Deity in strains of crude and unweighed importunity. 
These ranters may sometimes be very much in earnest, but surely the least we can say of it is that they praise their God amiss. I inquired afterwards of a friend, well acquainted with such matters, how the grim preacher of hope got paid for his labours, and he told me that the trade was an excellent one, for that many a good wife bestowed more than a tithe of what her good man entrusted to her keeping in rewarding the zeal of these self-chosen apostles. These sable ministers walk from house to house, or if the distance be considerable, ride on a comfortable ambling nag. They are not only as empty as wind, but resemble it in other particulars, for they blow where they list, and no man knoweth whence they come, nor whither they go. When they see a house that promises comfortable lodging and entertainment, they enter there and say to the good woman of the house, Sister, shall I pray with you? If the answer be favourable, and it is seldom otherwise, he installs himself and his horse till after breakfast the next morning. The best meat, drink, and lodging are his while he stays, and he seldom departs without some little contribution in money for the support of the crucified and suffering church. Is it not strange that the most intelligent people in the world should prefer such a religion as this to a form established by the wisdom and piety of the ablest and best among the erring sons of men, solemnly sanctioned by the nation's law, and rendered sacred by the use of their fathers? It would be well for all reasoners on the social system to observe steadily, and with an eye obscured by no beam of prejudice, the result of the experiment that is making on the other side of the Atlantic. If I mistake not, they might learn there, better than by any abstract speculation, what are the points on which the magistrates of a great people should dictate to them, and on what points they should be left freely to their own guidance. I sincerely believe that if a fire-worshipper or an Indian Brahmin were to come to the United States, prepared to preach and pray in English, he would not be long without a very respectable congregation. The influence of a religion sanctioned by the government could in no country in the nineteenth century interfere with the speculations of a philosopher in his closet, but it might and must steady the weak and wavering opinions of the multitude. There is something really pitiable in the effect produced by the want of this rudder oar. I knew a family where one was a Methodist, one a Presbyterian, and a third a Baptist, and another where one was a Quaker, one a declared atheist, and another a Universalist. These are all females, and all moving in the best society that America affords. But one and all of them is incapable of reasoning on things past, present, and to come, as the infants they nourish. Yet one and all of them perfectly fit to move steadily and usefully in a path marked out for them. But I shall be called an itinerant preacher myself if I pursue this theme. As I have not the magic power of my admirable friend, Miss Mitford, to give grace and interest to the humblest rustic details, I must not venture to linger among the cottages that surrounded us. But before I quit them, I must record the pleasing recollection of one or two neighbours of more companionable rank, from whom I received so much friendly attention, and such unfailing kindness, in all my little domestic embarrassments, that I shall never recall the memory of Mohawk, without paying an affectionate tribute to these far-distant friends. I wish it were within the range of hope that I might see them again, in my own country, and repay, in part, 
the obligations I owe them. End of chapter 12